Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. If you listened to the last two episodes of Israel Bible Podcast, you already know that I turned over my interview role to Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, who is the professor of Jewish history and culture at the Israel Bible Center. And... Dr. Cindy Parker is professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center and the usual host of the Israel Bible Podcast. (laughs) That's right. I get to sit in her chair, so to speak, today and ask her questions. And I'm sure it's going to be a really fascinating and interesting discussion. To be honest, I initially felt a little awkward being on the receiving end of the questions, but I quickly warmed up to the conversation at hand because it has to do with one of my favorite topics, why the land of the Bible should be treated like a character in the biblical narrative. In my experience, using the term geography puts people off. They'd rather discuss these heavy theological terms, but I am convinced the land can rework some of our expectations and help us dive into the colorful context of the Bible. Throughout the last two episodes, after we covered why the land is significant for biblical interpretation and how it became the context for learning to depend on God, we jump into a very specific event everyone is familiar with, though they don't always know the geography behind the event. But before we go there... I realized in the initial edits of the podcast that we barely even scratched the surface about what is in this course. In listening to the Land of the Bible Part 1, we do not try to go chronologically through the Bible, but geographically through the Bible. So I divide the land into geographical zones, and we discuss the unique characteristic of each of those zones and why that helps us read the Bible in a new light. So if you want to see all of those pictures, and lots and lots of maps, you need to sign up for the course because it is extra challenging to do all of that map work here without the visuals. However, I am going to try it right now in my explanation of the geographical context of a very well-known battle. One other example from the biblical text comes to mind, uh, the story of David and Goliath. which many people would consider to be mythical, for example, and would say, well, did something like that really happen? I actually used to live next to the Valley of Elah, very, very close. Um, And it's a fascinating place. Maybe you can just tell us how, once again, in this story, the geographical details are are deeply embedded and built in and relate to even questions like the veracity of the tale, for instance. And I love this story. Because one of my favorite things is to take people into this valley. Because so many people, even if they don't know all that many stories in the biblical text, the David and Goliath one is 
Like it's used even just in pop culture. It's, you know, it's a David and Goliath. Yeah. Everyone knows it. And so they, they feel so familiar with the text until I can get them into the geography and we can tell the very familiar story, but we, we anchor it in the right way. So to do the story justice, we really should go and do what is like, what is the larger political context? You know, Saul and the Israelites are pushing against the Philistines. What is the larger geographical context? Well, there's a portion of the land called the Shephelah, which is a different type and shape and characteristic of the land. It's a buffer zone between the hill country where the Israelites were and the coastal plain where the Philistines were. So it, the Shephelah naturally creates places of conflict. Now, this is what people don't pay attention to. This goes back to our roads idea. Through the Shephelah, there are connecting roads up to where the Israelites live. Now, depending on what your strategy is, you're going to choose different valleys in the Shephelah to try to access either the coastal plain or the hill country, depending on which way you're trying to go. There are very strategic roads. There are easier roads to travel, shorter roads to travel, roads that take you through more important cities. So we have, we can kind of take all of this information and in the different valleys that are in the Shvela, we can say some valleys are more important, more significant valleys than others. So the northernmost valley is called the Ayalon Valley. And in all the previous history, all these conflicts between the Philistines and Saul, the Philistines have been using the Ayalon Valley to get up into the Israelite hill country. And then as they fight and they're pushed out of the hill country, they always come back down through the Ayalon Valley. So what we see, even before we get to David and Goliath, is the Ayalon Valley has been a problematic access point for the Philistines to really be able to hold on to. So then you should say, what is the second most significant valley? Well, if we look at the cities, the roads, our connection points, access to water, the Ayla Valley is the next most important Valley. And sure enough, that is the place the Philistines finally try. So, the whole reason the Philistines are in that valley is because they're continuing to try to get up into the hills. They just keep getting pushed out. So, now they're trying a different tactic. So, what's interesting is from the Ayla Valley, there's a road that goes up into the hills, but south towards Hebron, which is one of the most significant Judean cities. The other one goes up and to the north and hits Bethlehem where Jesse is. And Jesse has his oldest sons fighting with Saul in the Ela Valley. And that's where we find David. David is up in Bethlehem when Jesse says, go check on your brothers. And once you understand the geography, you have to think part of Jesse is going And please let me know if we're about to lose because the Philistines could come up into the hill country and demolish Bethlehem next, right? So so it's a military strategy that puts the Philistines in the Ela Valley. And then once you're in the Ela Valley and you can see the texture of the valley, where it bends, where it curves, where the strategic parts are, 
then you can map out exactly where the Israelites were, where the Philistines were, where their place of conflict was. Um, And the whole story just takes on a richer level of political intrigue, maybe a little bit of nervousness over what's happening. Um, There's a lot of almost propaganda in the way that Goliath is being depicted in the text, which is really very interesting. Um, And if the Israelites then are able to take and control the Ela Valley, they now have an access point down onto the coastal plain. So it's a pivotal place for the Israelites to be able to protect in terms of making sure the Philistines don't get up into the hills and to hold on to in terms of them being able to get out to the coastal plain where all the international trade is passing by. So it's a lot more than just a shepherd boy fighting a giant. That's for sure. And if you go there, you also see, of course, the two hills on either side of the valley, very impressive kind of steep hills and this broad valley. And you can imagine, as the story says, the the camps of the two armies on the two sides and then coming down a bit to yell challenges across to each other um, and the combat probably right in the middle there of this this valley. And then again, the route of fleeing and pursuit is very closely linked to the different settlements in the area and where the roads actually go and turn, That's like you right. said. yeah, It's so fun to stand with people there and to say... Where would you go? If you were fighting down there and you lost, where would you run? And people, without even looking at the biblical text, you know, without looking at the historic event, can point out, oh, I would, I would run in that direction over there. I'd go around that hill and then further out to the big city. So they're intuitively figuring that out based on the land. And then I go, okay, so now let's read the story. And then when we read the story, that's exactly what happened. And it, it plays into, oh, we see the strategy. We actually understand what this means. It's what I would have chosen if I were there. Right. And even though they might not travel today on foot or on a donkey, you can still go on those same roads. That's right. Um, it's so interesting, including the ones that really wind their way up into the hills um, with all of these curves. You can really imagine the story. Uh, in a much richer way. I tell people all the time, I'm like, where where ancient people chose to put their roads was the most logical spot, which mm -hmm. means in modern day, when we build the road, we're building it in the same place. And it is fun to be in Israel and to be on the modern road in a bus or in a car, and then to pass by a section of ancient road, it's just off to the side. You're like, you can see how we're running parallel to each other. Well... We've only briefly mentioned, really, a few of the most important topics, or maybe not even the most important topics, but some of the prominent topics, at least, the selection that you have in your first course. And there's another course on listening to the land of the Bible that deals with a bit of a later period um, in some of the other books. We'll have to leave that, I think, to a future conversation, which I very much look forward to. I hope to be invited back to the podcast <laughs> to have a, a follow-up <laughs> conversation. Uh, just a little hint there. But um, in addition, you uh, have a book coming out. It is called Encountering Jesus in the Real World of the Gospels. 
Now, aside from the very obvious fact that there just are not enough books on Jesus and the Gospels, <laughs> what else inspired you to write this book? And what, you know, what does it offer people? I wrote the book because I, I teach in Israel all the time. And because I love the geography and I love explaining the character and trying to convince people how valuable it is to listen to the land as a character in the text. And I found when I'm teaching groups of people, they would let me do that when it had to do with the Hebrew Bible and with the Psalms and with images and the prophets. And then when I got into Second Temple text or specifically into the Gospels, they would they were so certain of the way that they understood who Jesus was as a person. And they would be less willing for me to kind of push on that a little bit. But the more I could get people's feet on the ground and really ask them to pay attention to the land, it started changing the way that they viewed Jesus and the way he would interact with people. When you're just reading the text and you don't understand the political landscape and you don't understand the geography, Jesus seems like an odd character because sometimes he heals people and he says, go tell everyone what I just did. Sometimes he heals them and he says, go talk to the priest. Sometimes he heals them and he's like, don't tell a single soul what happened. And so it seems, you know, in, in small ways like that, he seems like a confusing character. Well, all you have to do is map all of those events. Where did those events happen? What is the political landscape? What is the actual real landscape? And that gives you all the answers you need to be able to explain those events. So after teaching that material for a long time, I thought I really should just put it down into a book and really invite people into the conversation of asking the land what it has to tell them. Uh, What difference does it make if Jesus grew up in Nazareth, had a public ministry in Capernaum, and rarely went to Jerusalem? What does that mean for us as we read? And that is all land-oriented material. So it's, it's really just trying to invite people to take a new look, a fresh look at a text that they're very familiar with. What a great idea. And I have to say, I haven't read your book yet, but I hope I will have the opportunity in the near future. I'm expecting to find that indeed uh, those stories about Jesus and his uh, followers, his disciples and and others, uh, political entities and so forth, are just as deeply connected to the land and um, mm-hmm. and the realities you've been talking about. I mean, there's one example that I, I use sometimes uh, and it relates to the stories that he tells. You know, he, yes. people ask a question and he says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, to a typical reader today, that doesn't mean very much. It's just sort of a factoid, you know, going from one place to another. But for someone who lives in Israel or for someone of the time in general, that immediately tells you a huge amount about the context, the setting. It's a a scenery change. You know, they brought out a new scene onto the stage and you know what's going, you know the context, you know the framework. And that road that you can still go on, of course, from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
has its own uniquenesses and peculiarities and uh, and is, of course, very, very connected to yeah. um, certain part of the land and to that story that he's going to tell. Um, so, so I look forward to reading that book. That sounds fabulous. Encountering Jesus in the real world of the Gospels. And um, again, you do have a, a second course on listening to the land of the Bible, which uh, I encourage people to yeah. check out after they've done the first one. Maybe a final question that in a way sums up all the things we've been talking about. Let me put it this way. I'll use the forbidden word. Does <laughs> The G word? <laughs> the G word. Does geography determine human events? This is such a fun question. Um, and I, w- I want to say yes and no. <laughs> so Very good answer. I, yeah, yeah. And so thanks for being here. <laughs> no. That pretty much sums it up. You can leave there it at that if you like to, but you can say more if you want to add something. Geography does change things. Uh, it will dictate things. It will dictate what kind of jobs people have, uh, what is even possible, right? There are areas of the land where it is impossible to raise cattle. You can raise sheep and goats maybe, but you can't have large beasts, cattle, oxen, any of those. Those, they're impossible because the land does not support it, right? So there are things that the land makes possible, things that the land itself will forbid, the land will determine what kind of crops you're allowed to plant and which crops are impossible to plant. Um, so there are things like that. The land will determine that to be true. Um, and so the land is the one that is in control. Now, humans are also very resourceful and creative. And so humans can manipulate land and force the land to go against its own character So in the Hebrew Bible, in fact, this is really interesting because we can match this archaeologically with geography, with the biblical text. In times where the Israelite government was a strong government, so more of a centralized government, and the land was producing well, the government had the option of redistributing resources. So it could pull olive oil from rich olive oil producing areas and redistribute it down into areas like the Negev or the greater Negev, the great and terrible wilderness where people could not naturally survive. So in that way, the government, the humans that are in control can almost overstep what nature allows for and and provide for people there. But it takes a lot of effort and humans have to be at the top of their game to be able to make that happen. As soon as the government starts to collapse, then the land takes over once more and forces people out of that region. So so the land will dictate events. It'll dictate where battles happen, where strategic trading zones are, where the biggest cities have to be built because of all the wealth that is it going through that area. So the land dictates that, but humans do have an uncanny ability to trump nature 
when it wants to. And we see this a lot in the second temple period, which I think is listening to the land of the Bible. We actually do go on and talk about characters who forced the land to behave in a way it wasn't naturally created to behave. Hmm. Hmm. Now that does sound interesting. We will have to have a follow-up conversation, I think. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, even topics that sound familiar to people like agriculture, for example, might be done in a different way um, in the land of the Bible. Like you might have to do terracing on steep hillsides. That's right. Or even in certain areas where you can have cattle, that would be done in a very, very different way to other parts of the world where you, you know, most people think of cows in a big field of grass fenced in. Now I live now uh, next to another important valley in Israel, the Jezreel Valley. And we have a big um, forest reserve close to where I live. Mm -hmm. And if you go walking there, every so often you'll hear a big noise and there's a cow. That's right. There are cows (laughs) roaming around in the forest and that's how they raise cows in this region, which is so different from how cows are raised in most, you know, dairy producing regions of the world. So there's... It's, to say there's a wealth of information to be discovered is a gross understatement. Um, right. That's for sure. But thank you so much for this glimpse into the kind of things that you do explain in your courses and I'm sure in your yeah. book. Uh, Dr. Cindy Parker, professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. It's been a, a pleasure, very enlightening and instructive and very enjoyable. Oh, thank you so much. It is fun to be a guest on the podcast (laughs) instead of being the host. And I am so grateful that you you took the chair of host uh, for these couple episodes. I just thank you so much for participating. It's a fun project that we're doing at IBC. It's it's been a lot of fun to be the host. You should be careful (laughs) I don't try to steal the chair. (laughs) We can share, (laughs) maybe. If you like what you hear in this podcast, follow the link in the episode notes to find out how you can get this and many other courses with one small monthly subscription. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast, use the coupon code ISRAEL when you register and you'll receive a free surprise. And please do subscribe to this podcast if you are listening on a podcast platform like Apple Podcast, Overcast, or Google Podcast. And then rate it so other people have a much easier time finding us. Thank you. And thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I'll meet you here next week for a brand new series you are going to love. Music